Hello, and welcome to Disinfect, the podcast where we air out the worst songs in popular music history, at least in our opinion. I am your nominal co-host, Matt Deal, semi-renowned music writer, at least in my own mind. And uh, I'm joined by Morris Bernstein. Morris, of course, is a music expert par excellence, also the head of Giant Step, which is an amazing organization. I've probably said this in a million other intros. And then we have today as a special guest, Carl Hancock Rux. Carl Hancock's Rux, people. Hey, hi. How are you? Um, So we're we're very honored to have Carl Hancock Rux here. Carl is, um, as I always like to call him, a Renaissance man. Um, he is everything. He's a writer. He's a, a playwright. He's a musician. He's a poet. He's an artist. I'm sure I'm missing uh, some things. He's also the mayor of Fort Greene. And there you um, go. We're, we're, we're very, very honored to have him here today. That, that's Fort Greene, Brooklyn, for those yes. that don't know. Yes. Um, Carl, Carl, did we leave anything out in your estimable? I, I love that. that Mar- Morris, Morris has a way of just getting to the point. That was great. I love it. And so today, uh, well, today on Disinfect, we are disinfecting really one of the worst covers I've ever heard. Now, I say that for every episode. So we're, what we're going to do is we're going to basically disinfect and deconstruct um, Sammy Davis Jr.'s cover of the theme from Shaft by Isaac Hayes, which many scientific studies have indicated is one of the worst covers ever released. We have we have proprietary algorithms that determine this. Actually, to be honest, though, um, Morris played me this for the first time, and and I was I'd never heard it before. I was I was astonished. It it was shocking to me. And just by the way, we, we don't we don't diss people on this, uh, and we're big fans of Sammy Davis. Wait, go go ahead, Carl. Go ahead and diss <laughs> anyone you want. For real, I would Still never. Listen. I would never look. I would never diss Sammy Davis Jr. He's really important to the culture, but I do hate this person. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> just off the top of your head, what do you see as being significant about Isaac Hayes' original theme from Shaft? Well, one of the things is that at the time. You know, when Gordon Parks is, you know, making his foray, uh, it wasn't his first film, but really, but making his foray into being a filmmaker with Shaft. Um, and it really becomes like this big sort of monumental thing that he does, right? Shaft becomes this this, this great film. Um, An icon, and a great really, icon. Right, exactly. Because before that... As I was going to say, both the character of Shaft and even Isaac Hayes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, what I was going to say, what I was going to say, and just to go back a little bit, is that Gordon Parks, the director of Shaft, when he's making this film, they knew that they wanted a, uh, from what I know, they knew that they wanted, or that they needed, of course, a theme song. They got Isaac Hayes to write the song. But what's interesting about it is that we have to remember, Isaac Hayes wasn't really well known at that time either. Not as a record, especially not as a recording artist. He was a musician, but people people weren't people were not aware. No, not 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 in nineteen seventy two. You know, they were not aware. They, and in fact, a lot of people still beyond Shaft can't name a single song that Isaac Hayes has sung. I mean, I can, but by the time I get to Phoenix, 
Now, but wasn't wasn't a hot buttered soul? I mean, didn't you, wasn't that a massive success before Shaft? Wasn't that sort of what got him the gig? Well, well, well. Just just to go back on something that Carl said. I mean, Isaac Hayes was uh, a famous songwriter. Um, That's right. But, but he with David Porter, but people didn't really know who he was. So Sam and Dave, hold on, I'm coming, Soul Man written by Isaac Hayes. And also session um, musician for the, in the Session Stax, musician and he Stax would, band. Yeah, Stax, yeah, ex- exactly. Um, so he, but, but wait, he, I, I have to disagree. Hot Buttered Soul had come out, what, two years before? Is that right? Hot Buttered Soul did come out before, um, but he wasn't known to the mainstream. But, Hot Buttered Soul wasn't like a crossover when it came wait, out. Wait, whoa, whoa, whoa. Hot Buttered Soul was like, platinum wasn't it when it came out it was not a failure it was a massive success am i crazy i'll tell you right now it says that hot buttered soul was the second studio album by isaac hayes released in 1969 recognized as a landmark in soul music uh it includes songs by burt Bacharach and hal david like walk on by which i really love i really love him singing that it the number one on the r&b charts and number eight on the billboard 200 Right. And um, so it's a top 10 album, even though. So How Better Soul was Isaac Hayes second album, kind of is really his commercial breakthrough, uh, as we've determined. Top 10 album, uh, number one R&B. And what was significant about it, it kind of was a piece with sort of very ambitious orchestrated pop like Sgt. Pepper um, the uh, Jimi Hendrix albums, um, the uh, Stevie Wonder and Marvin Gaye records where they took control of their production. Um, in soul music, at least in terms of radio formats, it was really stratified. You had to have a two-minute song that fit on a seven-inch single. And these artists, and Isaac Hayes especially, smashed that. What were some of the other classics that were out like that? Uh, the Norman Whitfield Temptation stuff was the was the sort of like the psychedelic ball of confusion, um, psychedelic shack, um, cloud nine, that that sort of stuff. Um, I mean, what's going on didn't come out until the early seventies, uh, and Stevie's sort of like real sort of like purple patch creative creatively didn't come out to the 70s either so this was a precursor to that in many ways right so the stevie 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 wonder uh version two because you had stevie because you had you had little stevie wonder in the 60s yeah. right saying that was one thing but the other thing i wanted to make a point about is that even though isaac hayes had a few records like morris said he was still much more known as a as a session player and as a as an arranger and being um, being on the R and B charts didn't necessarily mean that you were on the pop chart, right? I mean, so those those are two different things. So so kind of like doing the theme song for a because if you think about what happened in black exploitation and Shaft becomes like the first the first major big hit of a black exploitation film, not the first black exploitation film, but the first mm-hmm. really successful one, right? Um, you have these you have the, you have these bands that are much that are known, you know, that, that have a that have a, a real cult following. I mean, like if you go back to uh, Sweet Sweetback's badass song, right? Earth, Wind, and Fire. That's right, Earth and Wind and Fire. 
Exactly. I would call it Earth, Wind, and Fire version one. Wasn't that one of Earth, Wind, and Fire's first recordings ever, actually? It was. Right. Well, it wasn't their first, but it was one of their first. Exactly. Um, Maurice White was in Ramsey Lewis's band, and they were musicians at chess. Also, you know, it's really funny. Like, with the, with the black exploitation era, there, there came this thing that happened that I always think is sort of amazing, is that those, a lot of those films, they, I don't know if, hiring Isaac Hayes on Shaft or the success of, uh, probably the success of Isaac Hayes' Shaft spawned a lot of other major recording, major recording artists doing the entire soundtracks for black exploitation films, like, you know, Gladys Knight, The Pips, or- oh, We're talking Shaft. Curtis Mayfield, Superfly, Trouble Man, Marvin Gaye. Jane. James Brown. The Payback. Sparkle, the movie, which Sparkle, Sparkle the movie. Sparkle was Aretha Franklin. Right. It was, it was written by Curtis Mayfield, but it was recorded by, by Aretha, Aretha Franklin. Correct. And that's 1976. But even before that, you had like, by the night, the pips on Claudine. This is an interesting factoid. Um, apparently, Sammy Davis Jr. was supposed to play Black Caesar. Hmm. The, it was actually, Black Caesar was written as a vehicle specifically for Sammy Davis Jr. And apparently the story of Black Caesar was he, this, the screenwriter had written the screenplay for Black Caesar and then he went to go see a producer. And the producer was like, you know, I think we should do something like this movie Shaft. And he's like, I have this screenplay in my trunk. Because oh, Sammy Davis Jr. for some reason turned it down. But again, again, the, the, the black exploitation and... Sammy Davis Jr. colliding is one of the great alternate reality Philip K. Dick uh, moments, I think, in um, in our cultural history. I mean, I think to your point, Hot Buttered Soul, even though it it did, it was a top ten album, even though it was number one on R&B charts. The songs were like nine minutes long. It defied the you know there was no single. I mean, I think they edited a couple songs down, but it was meant as a full on listening experience. And then, and then in terms of radio play, I mean, I think obviously some hipper stations in urban markets would play the full tracks. But a lot of times, I think it was some of the early, like, uh, black music being played on sort of freeform FM radio. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. he was more, it was more of like an avant-garde statement, despite its success, which I think is to your point. It was, um, so to, to have like a really avant, kind of cutting edge avant-garde soul songwriter musician with a very scant track record, at least to the public, you know, that was pretty radical for a, to have hire someone like that to make a soundtrack. Now the, the music has to be perfect. It, it, and in fact, it almost has to tell the story. Right. It, almost like right. a Greek chorus in a way. Even in, in a deeper way, even than a regular, I mean, a film soundtrack is supposed to do that. But I felt like with Shaft and then the Black Exploitation era, it was even even more of a Greek chorus in a way. I, I totally agree. I, I totally agree. I mean, I think it was it was major in that the composition itself was major. Uh, it was orchestral. It was not, you know, a three minute or a two minute side. It was not like a short record. You know, it was it it it, it was complicated. You know, but with soul, with soul music, right? Um, it was doing what, you know, what, and it's so, sort of interesting, but I don't know which came first, but I would say that 
it's, it's, it's very interesting to think that 1972 is the year that he, that the movie came out because, you know, Marvin, Marvin Gaye, when he's making What's Going On, is also rethinking, you know, the idea of like the two minute, three minute record. But a few people who really thought, really wanted to make their, themselves known as composers, right? More than just like, you know, I can just sing a one-off or I can sing a, you know, one little hit, you know, that they could actually do it all, that they could orchestrate, you know, something. Right. They so were the complete package, like an auteur. Exactly. Like, a, right. like, like, well, I think, and it's funny, I, um, Marvin Gaye, I think, said something. He was pissed because he's like, you let the fucking Beatles do whatever they want in the studio, and I have to write like a two-minute number that's a duet with Tammy Terrell. Like, I feel like sort of cultural histories are always been tilted where it's like the Beatles did it and then everybody else followed. I feel like those ambitious orchestrations came also, you know, Hendrix was sort of simultaneously doing it. I feel like Isaac Hayes and also... Or, like, Using the studio and 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 creating yeah. these ambitious, I think. Then, I, think then, I think. Go ahead. If we're going to talk about African American producers who were really, you, you've got to talk about Charles Stepney and Norman Whitfield, mm -hmm. who were taking it to a whole different level. And then even even if you look at sort of like what they had at Motown with the corporation, uh, and you sort of like the you know like uh, the, the behind the scene producers that we we didn't. We weren't being told their names, like the Mizell brothers. You know, they, they were doing some very, very creative stuff. Right. Yeah. And I right. think also that something that doesn't get a little short shrift, too, is like, I think the Beatles were influenced by, like, Gil Evans' work with Miles Davis, you know? and The Beatles were, I mean, you can, I mean, the Beatles were just influenced by Nolan Peary. I mean, the Beatles were, in, were, were, were influenced by blues. They were influenced by soul. They were influenced by things that actually, you know, the, the culture itself had thrown away. So, uh, and not just the Beatles, but also rock. I mean, rock in the 1960s, man, and, you know, the Rolling Stones and all those people. I mean, they were heavily influenced by um, black music of the, the 50s and, and 60s and, and, and Lightning Hopkins and all, all these people who we don't, we don't even talk about that much. Anymore. Bobby Womack all over now. That's right. Right, yeah. You know. And, and what's interesting about the Beatles, which is true of Shaft too, is like, and again, the other um, black exploitation composers, Willie Hutch has really got to be one of my mm -hmm. favorite. Mm -hmm. Willie Hutch is amazing. Yeah. I mean, if you've listened to any hip hop, you've heard Willie Hutch because he's been sampled. He's kind of the unsung guy in a way. He doesn't have the reputation, but his stuff is like unbelievable. But I think what the Beatles did, and then what Led Zeppelin did. But then, all, but then, really, what like Marvin Gaye and Willie Hutch, Curtis Mayfield did, was they created an atmosphere in the song. Funny you use the word unsung because there are a few people I think from that era, or at least from that year, where it hits that afterwards were unsung or didn't really reach the you know the same kind of height, like Billy Paul, right? Right. With me, with me and Mrs. Jones, right? And at least. Exactly. East. Like, yeah. oh my God. I remember yeah, the first, well, the first yeah. time I heard East. Like, I, oh my, oh my. I'm sorry, I won't curse, but I'm just telling you, oh yeah, my curse God. Like, like, when yeah. I heard East, like, I just lost it. You know, completely mm -hmm. lost it. I was like, wow, what a record. You know, and it was so incredible. So there, there were, you know, and, and, and um, who am I thinking about from the, from the, uh, from the, um, 
from the uh, Temptations. Holland uh, Dozier in Holland. Holland. Oh, oh, you're talking about Eddie Hen Eddie Ken Hen Eddie, Eddie Kendrick. Right, right, right. Yeah, That's yeah. Right. How I wish you right. would rain and um, right. and um, Noah Kane. Yeah. In the rain. Yeah. That's okay. right. Yeah. 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 You were in terms of like black music, in terms of hits, Shylights, Harold Melvin the Blue Notes, right? Staple singers, of course. OJ's, Dotex. You know, those people were the major artists. And still, I contend that you know, as though Isaac Hayes had made. A few records before Shaft, he 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 wasn't, especially as a singer, he he was not, he had not registered in popular culture's consciousness as a singer recording artist. Probably more of you know a, like an arranger. He I think that I think his Academy Award performance was the with the with the chains blew it out the box and the prostitutes in the car and the whole thing right so he recreates he recreates the entire like 1970 he, he recreates the movie in its own way this idea of like you know harlem you know ghetto you know you got the girls with the afro wigs and the dancers and they've never done a dance thing like that before on the academy awards because the song was nominated for academy award he does like a big production number he comes out in the chain vest in a car that's being pushed you know onto stage um uh, you know, that, that that whole thing was epic and, and amazing. And because, you know, again, Academy Awards. He was the third African-American to receive an Academy Award. Had him with Daniel, Sidney Poitier, and Isaac Hayes. Well, oh, oh, but um, did, did Quincy the, Jones never win an Academy third. Award for, for, uh, for soundtracks? No, even though he'd recorded some amazing music for some amazing movies, at he least was, eight years earlier. I mean, I think Quincy Jones by 1969, 1970, 1972 was the greatest soundtrack composer. Yeah, you want to talk about unsung, right? I mean, I mean, not really unsung, but I mean, like in terms of like 1970, you know, it's like they go to Isaac Hayes, which is interesting, but they didn't go to Quincy Jones, which is interesting. I think Gordon Parks made really hip choices. And if he went with Quincy Jones, that was a good choice. It wasn't the hip choice. Quincy was probably too busy working with Sinatra or something at the time. I, mean, I think they didn't want to, to use Isaac Hayes first for the movie. And then... They did. And, and I think uh, Quincy Jones stepped in and said, you guys are crazy. This guy's a genius. And then, and this is like the most racist thing of all. Well, it's racist and it's also culturally um, closed-minded. In, in other ways, they tried to take away the Academy Award from Isaac Hayes for Shaft because, oh, no. because he hadn't written out the sheet music. So in other words, he they'd come up with the licks, they'd record the licks, he'd improvised, he'd, you know, but he, he you know, they were essentially treating it like, like a jam session at Stax, which was a very modern way of recording and composing. Um, we're, we're seeing the ultimate of that now in the digital era. And the Academy didn't understand that. And I think they actually used it as a cudgel to really punish Isaac Hayes, really for intruding on their scenes. And actually, Quincy Jones came in at that point and was like, listen, you don't have to write down music to make music. This is why we have people like Isaac Hayes to push the whole idea of a soundtrack forward, that it's not just strings and you know, it's pretty conservative at that time. I mean, I guess you had Easy Rider, which probably blew open the uh, the soundtrack stuff. But that was heavy. I mean, I, they literally tried to take it away from him. 
should we uh, should we play the track? There's only could, there's only two things I wanted to say before. You know the background, the, the female background vocals. You know when he when he when he cur- when he says what he says, he's a bad mother, and they go shut your mouth and all that. You know, that's Toma Hopkins, who later became famous with Tony Orlando and Dawn. Oh, and yeah. then actually became famous not even as a recording artist, but more of a sitcom actress, like right. In, you know, playing, uh, uh, you know, Give Me a Break and things like that. So Tama Hopkins was a session singer. And the other thing I was going to say is that um, people have accused, and I think I think Isaac Hayes probably accused uh, Barry White of stealing his entire career from what Isaac Hayes did with Shaft. You know, going for this big orchestral, you know, you know, 20 minute long song, you know, the Sato Voce vocals, the very exactly, deep. Right, right, right. Exactly. Well, why don't we listen to the original and then we'll, we'll get even deeper into it after and during. So, uh, yeah, this is, the, this is the theme from Shaft by Isaac Hayes. There's actually, this is a minute and a half intro. Right. Which is so rare for pop music at the time. Even on the edited single, they kept the the long intro. By the way, this arrangement is by Hayes and Johnny Allen, so that's, that's something. Damn right. 
man that would risk his neck for his brother man. Can you dig it? Who's the cat that won't cop out when there's danger all about? Right on. You see, this cat shaft is a bad mother. Shut your mouth. What I'm talking about, Shaft? He's a complicated man, but no one understands him but his woman. John Shaft. So um, just just one one thing. Growing up in England, we we had some movie uh, theaters called Pearl and Dean. I don't think you have them here, and they would use part of that music as their theme at Pearl and Dean. So when you'd sit down and the movie would start, you'd hear da 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 da. They sampled it from that. So that's the first time I heard Shaft as a kid. I heard that part from when I used to go to the movies. Uh-huh. Wasn't it in the ABC Wide World of Sports too theme? Dun, 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 well, that's, that's you tell me. I I didn't grow up there, so <laughs> he played a different kind of football. <laughs> I actually barely watched sports, so, but but I do remember like I do remember if there were sports on, you do that that, 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 that staccato horn, probably yeah, thing. Classic, yeah. I mean, I mean, I think that that when you hear that song. I think the reason why it became sort of a ubiquitous theme song for other people too is that it was like the sound of something was going to happen, if that makes any sense. Right, right. Which, which again, I think I think that they were probably taking a note from Sweet Sweetback's badass song with Earth, Wind, and Fire because if you listen to that, those tracks were also, you know, they weren't short singles necessarily. You know, they were orchestral and they were long. They weren't as funky, but they were definitely as a shaft. But they were, you know, because they had long running sequences, right? Where, where you know, Sweetback's just running, you know, he's running, he's running, he's running. Or there were scenes where he's, you know, at the orgy, like the big orgy thing, and there's, there's music. And, and so that, that idea of just composing and just doing whatever you wanted to do, probably a bunch of musicians high on whatever they wanted to be on and going for as long as they wanted to go, uh, was this underground cult kind of, you know, groovy thing to do. And it was a, and I think it was great. I think it was really, really foresight for Gordon Parks to hop on that train and to say, you know, yeah, that, that, that's exactly what Shaft would sound like. You know? And I think what you, you made a good point with Earth, Wind & Fire. Earth, Wind & Fire, before they were known as like a R&B funk act, they were really a jazz band. And I, I believe they were acolytes of the um, art ensemble of Chicago. Right. 
which were which was a completely revolutionary um less debuy jazz movement that really like attacked and fractured um musical tradition you know that it rebuilt it and then it was coming out of obviously that you know um i, I really associated with the, the black panther era it was like if we're going to shatter societal stuff then we have to sh shatter the music too right that's right that's right yeah totally totally change totally change the game you know say what we want to say do what we want to do let the let, let the music actually be for the people um in a way that it becomes revolutionary everything that i think artists um were trying to do around 1970 1971-72 uh was revolutionary things that hadn't been done before even if it was their first album you know they were doing revolutionary albums all these things influenced of course by the civil rights movement and the black panther movement all the stuff that happened in the 60s because there was no soundtrack to that if you think about it in the 1960s when you had you know when you when you had this sort of like you know major sort of political social movement that was happening for black people um it was on the news i mean people were aware of it people were quite aware of it it was it was on television but there was no real musical soundtrack to it I mean, I think of Nina Simone, but, you know, was sort, sort of, of the Sort of, right. Yeah, and she'd been around right. before, right. But sort of, right. Exactly. Maybe Mississippi Goddamn and things yeah. like that, right. But that that's, you know. I mean, you had, Bob, but you, had, you, had, you had Bob Dylan's Blowing in the Wind as one of the songs of the civil rights movement, and he was a white... I'm going I'm 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 to venture out and say that predominantly black people weren't huge Bob Dylan fans necessarily. You know what I mean? Like they dug what he was doing and they dug what he was saying, but it right. wasn't like everybody, like every black person had a Bob Dylan record in their house. No, of course not. I mean, I, I think a lot of, when I, I worked in a record store and I remember African Americans thinking like, this dude sounds terrible. Horrible. Right. Although, <laughs> although the, the biggest Bob Dylan and most, probably the most important Bob Dylan fan ever was Jimi Hendrix. I mean, Jimi Hendrix mm -hmm. was obsessed with Bob Dylan and Bob Dylan actually said that Jimi Hendrix was the best interpreter of his songs ever. I, I'll also just add that Sam Cooke's Change is Gonna, Change is gonna Come is probably the first um, song for that soundtrack, the Civil Rights soundtrack. The, the, you know, the progressions in Change is Gonna Come the, you know, the sound, the chords, the progressions, the vocal style was really taken from um, conventional, go gospel. conventional yeah. gospel and R&B. When Earth, Wind and Fire was was uh, hired for Sweet Sweetback, like that was that was like urban music from Chicago. Shaft was set in like New York City, pretty much on the street. You know what I mean? If you if you've ever lived in New York. You hear music from cars, you know, the, the the whole, the way the street sounds is like just no other city. And I think that that, that was what they, you know, in, in both cases, they were trying to capture that, that feeling, which, which if right. you haven't been to those yeah. places, I mean, am I crazy? No, you're not crazy at all. And also, I think that's, uh, you know, you've got Soul Train, right? I mean, Soul Train is is Soul Train starts like what around 1970 or 71 right so this whole the people wanted to dance you know and they really wanted to dance and they wanted to dance free for them, right they really wanted to you know sort of get down with it so 
you know we're not giving enough credit to is Brown. James Brown? Yeah. And it's influence on records. Because James Brown was doing long. Yes. Or care Extend, what extended vamps, really. That's right. He was doing extended vamps. You know, he was doing it. And that was huge, right? So people were, you know, they were all, everybody was in the streets dancing to James Brown. And nobody could match it. You know, nobody was matching it. And nothing else really came around that matched it until, yeah. So what's interesting about James Brown and then Earth, Wind & Fire and Quincy Jones is I think what James Brown and Shaft did was they took the syncopation of jazz and tightened it. There was improvisation, but it was like you had these really like tight rhythmic figures where the improvisation would kind of, you know, there'd be the vamp and it'd be like the one riff over and over and the one groove. They were sort of taking something. Th this is where I think the funk came in. It was like they were taking aspects of syncopation and improvisation and sort of putting it into like a pop identity. They were taking the, the you know, these elements of jazz and putting it into soul, like all the great things that we thought about soul, like the intensity, the passion, um, you, the lyrical yeah, you got, content. You've you, you got to give Pee Wee Ellis all the credit for that. Yeah, I think because <laughs> these were all, these were jazz arrangers, and you know, James had Pee Wee and Fred who were, you know, jazz musicians, and Fred did all the work anyway. James just took the credit, you know. Um, right. But then even Bootsy, Bootsy was an incredible arranger and player, and could play anything, and uh, and he was in James Brown's band. Shaft. Um, it takes that James Brown hard syncopation and then applies it to this kind of incredible symphonic orchestral sound. I always, I, I always bring up Gil Evans about this. There's something like floaty and weird about the melodies and the chords. It sounds like it's, it's the music that's sort of telling you something's about to happen. Right. And I think part of that is it doesn't resolve in like traditional classical Western ways. I mean, there are some like, da -na 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 -da 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 -da. It's more like this kind of snaky, slithering, un unpredictable right. melody. Right. Yeah. And you're locked in with like the beat. You're locked in with um, uh, the, the the guitar, the wah wah. You're, you know the syncopation of the hi hat. But then there's these like things that are just you just never heard stuff like that before. Right. Right. You know? And and again back to the back to the thing about Brown and the. The, the, the syncopated beat. It's interesting you say jazz, and I think that all of these musicians had some kind of a jazz training. James Brown didn't because he was also an untrained musician, right? I mean, so he wasn't, I mean, he was really more of a, he was more of a vocalist. He was never a jazz singer ever, right? Uh, he was a street guy who grew up in brothels and, you know, and, 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 you know, with, with close, pro, pro, close proximity to the church. So, you know, so, which is kind of amazing, right? So you, you kind of, you make up your own thing. It becomes a, hey, you know, and, and a, little, a little riff here and there. You know, hey, hey, like, you know, hot dance, you know, whatever. And that's, that's all you need to say. Just do that and get that beat going. Get that beat going. Get that beat going. Get that beat going. So even though all the guys had, like, you know, major jazz training, I, I don't know that I would absolutely say that they were, that they would have said at the time that they were that they were being influenced well, by jazz. They might the thing, have, but I mean, again, I think like 
Jimi Hendrix was borrowing from jazz, from Gil Evans. Obviously, he went on to play Buddy Miles. Mm-hmm. And um, I think where James Brown ties in with jazz is he was sort of taking like scat singing to another level, basically. He was like totally improvising on the on the melody, on the beat, around the beat in a in a scat way, but then he, he made it his own. And then there was also the, the the church influence, almost like the speaking in tongues, like the rapture. You know, the, it was a powerful combination and it was kind of effortless. That's right. Know? I think that that's what that's what made it so cool. What's funny, too, is Shaft is also people call it like the first hip hop song. A lot of times it's like the, the first rap song. Mm. I, I mean, obviously, it's not the first rap song. That was um, what was it? Well, Rudy, uh, Ray, Rudy Ray, Rudy Ray Moore. Uh, claims that he did the uh, first rap as well. Yeah. I mean, it's like... Uh, King Tim 3, Personality Jock by the Fatback Band is considered the first rap song. Um, but, you know, with, with Isaac Hayes, like, there's nothing, almost nothing sung on Shaft other than... What year, what year was that? That was 1979. Then I have to disagree. You're saying that an, a record that came out in 1979... Is considered the first rap record? How is that possible? That's just, I mean... 79 is late. 79 is late. It, discount, it discounts Gil Scott Heron. It discounts... Oh, it discounts no, no, but my... my last poets. My point is, my point is, is that, like, Gil, Gil Scott Heron and Shaft were, like, the precursors. They're, they're considered, like, the real precursors, in a way. Both in the spoken word aspect, both in the... I think truth telling aspect of of the lyrics, well, the, the last poets, the last yeah. poets, and then also what's interesting with with Shaft was um like like Isaac Hayes actually sampled himself like that the guitar line was from I think an Otis Redding session, and he's like why don't we play that with a wah, he actually literally like took a tape off the shelf and was like. I have this guitar line, but I think it'd be better with the wah. Skip Skip Pitts played the guitar on Shaft. We need we need, we need to say his name because that's probably the most famous part of the song. So he needs to get credit for it. Oh, and then also Big Payback, I think, is a, is an early proto hip hop song, rap song, in the same way like Last Poets and Shaft is as well. Who is it that you said was the first rap record in nineteen seventy nine? The Fatback Band, these uh, King, King Tim Three Personality Jock by the, by the Fatback Band was released on March twenty fifth, nineteen seventy nine, a few months before Rapper's Delight. Okay, so it's considered the first commercially released oh, so hip hop song. Does that make sense or no? Yeah, I guess it does make sense. It's something that kind of flew over my head. I don't know. I wouldn't. I wouldn't call it the first rap record because if because if, if you're going to do that, then and if you're going to say that, if you're going to say at all that Shaft was, is to be considered part of that pantheon, then we're getting into an abstract conversation. And I think the abstract conversation is welcomed and wonderful, right? But it wasn't the first, Isaac Hayes' record wasn't the first record where someone just spoke, right? I mean, you had Gil Scott Hearn before that, you know, and you had, you had the last poet speaking to music before that and on and on and on. Right. So, and even even in, in I think Art Ensemble of Chicago had sort of spoken word elements as well. Right. Right. And, I mean, I think I think the cool thing about Shaft was it synthesized all this stuff into one package. 
it did it it did it in a big way it did it in an orchestral way it did it with this band that you know where the one thing about Shaft is sort of interesting is that it's not just the unlike brown it's not just the beat that's emphasized right you know like you know cuz cuz James Brown is like it's that music is incredible right but really you're you're just like if you're if you're a layperson i mean you're just you're right in the groove, right? You're dancing to that to that beat, and it's all about it's all about what's percussive and what's what's danceable about it. Shaft isn't a hugely dance. I mean, it is, but it it doesn't come off. I think as a hugely danceable track in the same yeah. way that James Brown's dance track tracks yeah. did, right? Because you've got flute, right? You've got flute, and you've got you know. You have all yeah. these, you have all these things that we weren't you know violence you know things that you know that why would let people weren't I mean you know, I mean not that we weren't using those instruments but but that that wasn't street that wasn't necessarily considered street so it becomes it becomes sort of something that uh, the bridge between composition of like film composition and something that could work for the streets you know that could that could still work for the people. Yeah. Well, we have to talk about Shaft and Disco as well. Oh, that's huge. 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 Because Disco, you know, when it sort of comes about, is it also introduces itself as something you can dance to, not in the James Brown kind of way, right? But, you know, in this, in this, in this other way in which you're introducing all these classical instruments and, and, and classical compositions uh, that still have a beat, right? That that still stays within a beat. So it becomes it's orchestral. It's hugely orchestral in that way. So yes, I would absolutely credit uh, the cases shaft as being a forerunner to. Well, and there's also the hi hat pattern, and also just the beat is is essentially the disco beat that that is famous. Which I'm trying to think was that in popular music that that syncopated hi-hat pattern before Shaft? Right. Or if it was, was it used in the same way? I mean, I, well, all of these, all of these sounds, there's not, there's not a single sound that um, we've never heard before, but it's really, it's the conglomeration of sounds, right? It's, it's, how they, it's how they all come together. So the idea of a syncopated sound um, is not new, you know, or using a hi-hat, certainly not new, certainly existed in jazz, but the idea of it from the beginning of the record to the end of the record and only in one meter, right? You know, and just staying like that, you know, whatever, continuously so that we kind of get into this sort of jungle rhythm that becomes sort of new. That takes up, that, that borrows a note from so many things as we've already mentioned. But there's also, I never really noticed this before. There's the dun, 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 dun. So the the snare and the and the kick are doing a kind of a traditional Motown pattern. I don't know what it's called. It's it's also on like Rebel Rebel by David Bowie. And I think Ain't No Mountain High Enough. It's a a Smokey Robinson, Smokey and the Miracles. It's like it's it's very sort of Motown. Yeah, Yeah, you know what he did. You know what he did when he was asked to compose Shaft. he was work. He was he was doing something at Stats, and so some of what became the final composition for Shaft was already pre-recorded music that he hadn't used with Stacks. And Stacks, of course, came from Motown, so it makes total sense. 
Absolutely right. But then it's like, I never, even though I'd heard that song so many times, like because of what you said, like because it brings together all these unexpected elements, it's like, it's like the future. People, people forget about popular music. You know, popular music is like the really great stuff is like the stuff that actually took you to the next stage of, you know, culture. It's not, it's not just the stuff that's like catchy. It's like, this is like a whole new way of hearing, listening. This is a whole new way of blending that I, that I discovered something new about this song 40 years later. I mean, that's just speaks to how ahead of its time it was. The idea of its radicalism and, and sound, just to respond to what you just said, um, ahead of its time, but also in sync with, with its time. You know, yes. Vietnam era, the world has shifted in a major way. So it's no, we don't have time for April in Paris, right? And we, and we really don't have time for, in a way, with the Vietnam era, we really don't have time for Motown. Not, not in the way that Motown had been. You know, we don't, the Supremes break up, right? We don't even have time for that kind of, you know, um, baby, baby. It's, 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 the world's just too serious. So it's ahead of its time, but it's actually in sync. It's right in sync with its time, in a way, you know? Um, and still, as you said, forward thinking in its, in its composition. Two, like when, when you talk about how like Motown was not, serious enough for that moment anymore i think also in terms of like um like the kinds of things that motown was thinking about like we were entering the era of divorce we were coming out of free love and the music had to reflect that too you know i mean i think even in isaac hayes it's like right it, it's clear he's sleeping with like many women <laughs> i mean that's the theme of the song that's right you know it's that's it's, right yeah absolutely you know, I mean, that's right. I mean, Marvin Gaye, Marvin Gaye, when he when he makes that record, what's going on, right? He's he's kind of questioning the politics of the world. You got Billy Paul in 1972 sleeping with a married woman. You know, me and Mrs. Jones, right? So it's like all all these rules, kind of like those those uh, those rules that we that we had prior to that are, are kind of out the window. We're not we're not concerned about it anymore. Or we're or like you said, it's like perfect. It's like really expressing the moment that everybody's living in. That's right. Right. Um, so why don't we check out uh, let's check out Sammy Davis doing Shaft and that's what's wrong <laughs> <laughs> with I think this arrangement is amazing by the way and it's Isaac Hayes doing the arrangement it's still Isaac Hayes yeah. right the music is still Isaac Hayes mm -hmm. See, the problem the problem with it is that Sammy it's still in 1964 somewhere. You yeah. know, but he's not. You know what I mean? Right on. Right on. Is there is there ever been a more laconic right on in pop music history? Horrible, horrible, horrible. I think I heard. I think I heard the story that he, he went into the studio and that it was written out for him, and that he, that he like he did it in one take. You know, he just did it, and the lyrics were right there. So it wasn't like he rehearsed it. It wasn't like he really gave it any thought. He just kind of did it. So it's it's Sammy Davis Jr. trying to be part of the revolution, but he's not. You know, he's really not. He's not the revolution. 
He stands for the good in the roughest neighborhood. He's no stranger. He's treated with respect. His friends let him know that there is danger. He's a complicated man, and no one understands him but his woman. Okay, so here's the, here's the other problem. The other problem, he's too on pitch, he's singing too well. You know, that, 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 that's the other thing, is that he, I mean, he, he comes from another time, right? He, I mean, he's Sinatra, you know, him and Sinatra and all those people, right? I mean, so he comes from this era of like, you know, sing on pitch and, 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 and get your intonation right and all that stuff. And he's bringing all of that to this record that has nothing to do with that. Isaac Hayes, when he does it, is not, you know, I mean, you know, he's like, you know, he's not concerned with it. I'm not concerned with absolutely sounding like a singer so much. As you can hear. Right on. Shaft. Shaft is the man. Shaft. Shaft is the man. Horrible. The bravest black private dick in the city, John Shaft. (laughs) Can you dig him? Always looking so cool, together for days and all that leather. Taking care of business too, baby. He's always on the case. I mean, he gets it all together. That's my favorite part. <laughs> yeah, he's bad, 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 bad. It's the Swingle, Swingle Sisters version of black exploitation. Go ahead with your bad self, John Yeah, here's a few things that Sammy Davis Jr. relates to at that time. I would say. Um, you know, he did he did such a brilliant job in sweet in the movie Sweet Charity, which is which is awesome. But then that's a Broadway musical that was turned into a movie, right? So he's able to they, he can do a show tune because it's it's written for his voice, right? Prior to that, of course, he's singing records. I mean, could you imagine? Could you imagine someone like Sarah Vaughn singing Hot Pants? I mean, that's what this that's what this becomes, right? It's almost like you know, like you know. Like like Caravan going up, hot pants, you know, or, or whoever, or even 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 Sinatra tried to do it. Like it, it wouldn't, it just doesn't work. It, like you can't do that. You can't. It's from a whole other thing. You know, it's something else. Well, I think I think the 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 effortless. So so Isaac Hayes makes it sound effortless, right? And he's a little bit behind the beat. He's not trying. And well, or or he understands the feel of it and and what what that means. And you th- again, you, you think like, oh, he's just talking, and then you try to do it, and you can't do it like Isaac Hayes. Right. The, the other question was, what was Sammy Wayne? Is the Sheiky shirts back then? Or is Nero shirts in in this period, or is this uh, Nehru? Yeah, the, so, Nehru. He was rich as, yeah. He was, yeah, Nehru. He was rich as 
as, as Get Out, Diamond Rings and the whole nine, and you know, and this big hit actually from that time was Candyman. The Candyman, same, al- same album, you know, same oh, album, Candyman. yeah, which actually is the worst song of all. Right, <laughs> right, right. <laughs> he also has MacArthur Park on yeah, the album I, as well. Right, that's his hit. Yeah. You know? Well, the Candyman was considered. I mean, that was just like shameless pop opportunism. Consider, you know what I mean? That was like middle of the road. It's, it, it's it, not, it, it not even on a road, that song. It's so bad. It's <laughs> I mean, I don't know. There's right. something offensive about Candyman that you can't even put your finger on. Right. You know what he's supposed to be talking about, but he's, but he doesn't sound like he's ever had any candy. And the other thing, too, <laughs> is that, the other thing, too, is that he's so Vegas. He's so Vegas about it. And he was. That was the era. He was so he's so Vegas about it. You know, Candyman is Vegasy. His shaft version is Vegas. Who is the man? The man is woman. All this elocution and all this, you know. It's like, like dude, we don't care. Like, it does, it's not that deep. You know, you don't have... <laughs> we, like, the kids were, were, you know, it's not that. You know, it's something else. And so he's... And he's really... He's staying in that Vegas... Where where did Sammy sit um, amongst the African American community around this time? Because he he was a, quite a controversial character um, as far as how he was seen and perceived. He broke so many boundaries, right. but then was seen as an Uncle Tom. So was Shaft him trying to be in, or what? What do you think? I, I think so, and I think that also. It's um, there's talking about Sammy Davis Jr. Uh, one has to speak generationally, right? So let's say if you were if you were 18 or 19 years old, Sammy's a no go, right? In 1972, if you were 35 and older, you appreciated all that all that Sammy had done. I mean, he'd made you know he made he'd made uh, you know a man called Adam. You know, which a little known movie, 1966, which is a badass movie, you know, um, and, uh, and and it's an independent film. And he does it in such an, such an incredible way. And it really is about like the injustices of white racism. Right. Um, but how it influences how white racism has impeded jazz culture. So that's what that's what that's about. Right. So he does that. But he's not 1972. He's not he's not hip with the kids. You know, he's jazz. I mean, I'm sorry. Yeah, he's he's jazz, and he's he's Rat he's, Pack. He's he's um he's Sinatra. He's Dean Martin. But, but, but he, he's Rat Pack. But, but those guys, even the Rat Pack guys, would make fun of him in a in a very derogatory way on stage. You know, just and he would be the brunt of their jokes. Yeah, right. he would allow it, right? Well, and I, and also too. I mean, right. I remember reading this stuff. Um, he was like held up as a sex symbol that that was acceptable for white women to find attractive. And then when, when Isaac Hayes came out on the Academy Award with like no shirt and those chains, it was like, you know what? <laughs> this, you know, your, your idea about like sexuality is a little old. Like, you know, I'm claiming this. And, and it, was, it was powerful. It, it was just like, a, again, a generational change, a cultural shift. Well, you know what? There were, there were a lot of black artists from the 50s and the 60s on, onward that white women found attractive. I mean, going back to Harry Belafonte, right? But here's the thing. There weren't that many who were unabashedly walking around with white girlfriends or white wives. Sammy was, right? I mean, so that, so that whole thing. Remember that his 
uh, you know that that whole the, with uh, what's her name? What's the, what's the sweet? Is she Swedish? Um, the first wife and 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 kind of the mafia kind of like you know talks to him and says you know you gotta you know get rid of it or you can't date her anymore. Hanging out with Marilyn Monroe, you know all that stuff, right? I mean, he's hanging out with some of the baddest, like sexiest white women, you know that they're that, to be found, you know, just because he feels like he's got you know Sinatra behind him, but it's not a, it's not enough. Um, and then so black people are like you know hey, brother, what's wrong with the sisters? And white people are going like, you know, hey, brother, not even brother, hey, Negro, stay in your place. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, don't get, don't get, too, don't get too excited. But right. then and he was so radical, yeah. though, he just did it anyway. And, and, and actually what's great, you know, to, to Sammy's credit, dovetailing with this moment, what I love about Sammy is an... Um, when when uh, I think he had to, I think he actually presented the Academy Award to Isaac Hayes and he said something like, this is amazing. Both my people won tonight because Fiddler on the Roof won <laughs> and Shaft won. I mean, he literally said that he's like, both my people are being honored tonight. Right. He was Jewish. He was also wasn't he in his that big photo of him kissing Nixon? Yeah, he was in Nixon. That, yeah. Like around in, in, yeah. in the early 70s, which yeah. is in. A, yeah. 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 They, but, some, I mean, so all these things are kind of betraying where we're trying to go, where black people are trying to go. Right. Well, and also, but, I but, mean, but, but also in, in just one thing we should say about Sammy was he was one of the most talented uh, entertainers of the 20th century. Absolutely. Um, and if it, it, and I think, you know, his color definitely held him back or else he would have been much much bigger than he was he he could play the drums better than he he was kind of like the prince of his time in a way the fact that he could pretty much do everything better than anyone else you know just so talented well a couple things um i think at that time cultural definitions were very rigid in a sense so for example there was a vocal um yeah obviously it was the it was the black is beautiful movement Black Panther movement, like uh, young, gifted and black, you know, celebrating your your African-American heritage in a revolutionary way was was an there was a vocal part of the African-American community was like, you have to do that. And then there was obviously a vocal part of the white community that was like, no, you have to be this. And I think Sammy Davis was a very early sort of exponent of there's not the black experience there's the there's black experiences there's there's nuance here i'm gonna date who i want to date i'm gonna be who i want to be i'm gonna hang out who i want to hang out with i'm gonna sing the kind of songs i want to sing and it may not add up to your definition of who i am and and we really i mean i was thinking about this it was like it took a while for that to to sort of change i mean he was sort of a person that helped move those goalposts in a way, even if he was middle of the road, even if he was conservative, you know, kissing Nixon or whatever. Yeah. It, it's like, you know, there are there, you know, some black people voted for Nixon. And so did James Brown. James Brown uh, was in bed with Nixon. I mean, we're, we're yeah. hard on Sammy, but he was actually doing what the same thing that all the other guys in his generation were doing, like to, um, Tony Bennett 
around this time put out an album that was like Tony Bennett's hip album and it was all covers of like the Beatles and you know so like all those artists I think with the exception of Sinatra felt this need to be like down with the kids and you know Sammy was just going along with it I mean I think the problem is when you hear a Tony Bennett or a Sammy Davis attack this contemporary material is like they don't understand contemporary melody. You know, if you listen to Sammy Davis on, you know, he, his accents are completely wrong. You know, he's, his improvs are completely wrong when he's, he's aggro at the wrong times, you know, and it's, it's not convincing when he is. Um, right. And that's, that's, that's a lot generational. Sorry, go ahead. No, I, I agree with you completely. Totally. His elocution is, you know, it belongs to another moment. Um, and so it, it just doesn't, it doesn't fit, you know, it's not that he can't sing. I mean, nobody would ever say that, you know, or that he was an incredibly talented man. I don't think anybody should ever say that, but, um, he was very talented and could sing, but, um, this was not the right fit. No, (laughs) it was, uh, this is the worst fit you could possibly you know, like I said, Sarah Vaughan singing Hot Pants, you know, they might as well have done that, you know, they, they might, <laughs> you know, but she knew better, but they might, they might as well have done that, you know, that, that's the only thing I think that could have been worse. Or Sarah singing Say It Loud, I'm Black It Up Loud. Could you imagine? What was some of the what? No, I was thinking about other covers of Shaft, because Shaft is such a big song that it actually, you know, it. I think it 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 opened up you know, there's obviously a lot of parodies of Shaft because it was so bold. You know what I mean? If you think about like the things that we parody in culture are the bold statements are, you know, it's like the Godfather, you know, like uh, Nixon, like, you know, it's so big. And also I think Shaft became a standard in a way, ironically, even though Sammy Davis would sing standards, theme from Shaft kind of became like this pop culture standard. Um, I will say, by the way, Sammy Davis, got the wrong title. He called it John Shaft on his album and not theme from Shaft. Right. Um, but there've been a few other covers of, of Shaft that are really interesting. Um, uh, Joe Batan did a Latin jazz version, which is pretty good. I mean, I think it's, it's pretty similar. It has a, it has like, it has a kind of a layer of like Latin percussion underneath that, that actually sounds awesome. I think. I mean, it really, it grooves. Um, it, it's not that different, but it definitely grooves. Um, uh, let's see. There was a hit in 85, Eddie and the Soul Band. You remember them? Um, th- that was a hit in England, Morris. Uh, the, the reggae then, version, The Chosen Few, is like one of my favorite. The reggae cover of Shaft is excellent. Right. And then what's really interesting is, is Shaft was actually discovered by the punk and the new wave movement. Um, Cabaret Voltaire did a great version of Theme from Shaft. It's like David Byrne, Brian Eno, uh, My Life in the Bush of Ghosts. It's kind of deconstructed in that 80s way, early sampling, uh, con- you know, music concrete. Uh, to me, that's one of the best ones. And then there's this band called The Wedding Present, Mm-hmm. That they were kind of like a Scottish band. Yeah, they were kind of like a Joy Division E type post punk band. They did a version. Um, 
and then they're most uh, famous for putting George Best on their album cover. That's all I remember totally. about Wedding Present. And then probably the greatest the greatest punk cover of of Shaft was from Black Randy and the Metro Squad, which uh, on their debut album passed the dust, I think, on Bowie. And if you listen, Black Randy is is improvising and basically saying shit that people are thinking that don't suck. Which Isaac Hayes was actually doing in his time. And it's it, it, it's kind of funny how it endures. Um well by the way, Carl, I want to ask you, like, what do you think about covering Shaft? I mean, do you do you think it can be covered successfully? You know, what 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 makes it a, a good cover or a bad cover? Well, first of all, I mean there's the what is it? One one minute of lyrics? It's not. It's there's nothing to do. Why would I co- like? It's not a cover song, I don't think. In terms of, from a singer's perspective or from a vocalist's perspective, there's not. You know, they added. You'll see as you see in the Sammy version, there are all these added lyrics. You know, to give them the chance to do all of that. You know, you know, uh, elocution. <laughs> you know, and all that stuff or whatever. Because that that doesn't exist in the first one. Uh, I think that it's a it's a great cover song for for bands if they if they if they deconstruct it in the way that you spoke about and I think that's wonderful. Deconstruction to me is always wonderful, um, and uh, and welcomed if it's done well. But Carl, you are you are a kind of an interesting artist where you sort of bridge spoken words, singing, poetry. You know what I mean? Like in your own music and your own art. Yeah, and and I've discovered that a few songs either recorded or not recorded that I've, that were covers um, were matches for me that I never, ever would have thought would have been like the song that I did by Laura Nero. Right. Um, but it, but it, but it worked because I think she was writing it in a, she was writing it in a blues idiom and her, her record of it sucks, but I, but I know what she do, you know? And so then I was able to kind of do something to it, you know, or recently I did, uh, recently, I did a live cover of like something by Laurie Anderson, but it was Michelle and Cello who was playing the bass behind me. So that was a whole other thing, and that wasn't recorded, but it was a live show, and and that really worked. You know? So like every now and then, you'll find a song that you would never like. I would never me. I never would have thought. Oh yeah, Carl got a cover. Uh, you you did you Poverty know. Train, right? With Laurie. Yeah, I did Poverty Train. That's right. That's right. That's Laurie Nero. Yeah. And I did it, and I rearranged it in my way. I think both Michelle and Digicello and Jimi Hendrix are some of the greatest interpreters of song in a way like Sinatra was, you know? And I think, you know, that Michelle and Digicello record that was all 80s covers? Yeah, she Don't Disturb the Group, which was great. System, yeah. Oh, my God. Oh, yeah. my God. Or, or uh, what's the, she did the Force MC song? And, um, you know, and again, Hendrix and Michelle and Digatello, they're original artists. You know, we think of them for their original compositions, but oh my God, people think of Hey Joe as a Jimi Hendrix song. They don't think it as a cover. They think of All Along the Watchtower before they think of Dylan. And I think the the lesson that we've sort of been learning is if you're going to cover a song, you better make it your own. Like you heard things in the Laura Nero song that you connected with that were like, they were there, but you brought them out. The, the big impulse f- for a terrible cover is that there's an A&R guy who's like, 
you know, you really need to be hip. And in order to be hip, we think you should cover whatever the latest thing is. Uh, we, you know, our first episode was Joy Division, um, Paul Young covering Level Tears Apart by Joy Division. Like, what a terrible idea to have a blue-eyed soul singer cover Joy Division. Um, Barbara Streisand covers David Bowie. Again, terrible A&R trying to be hip. Um, and, uh, you, you know, you can't, you can't be somebody else. You can't be somebody's idea of something, you know? Yeah, Carl, we, we right. blame, we blame A&R men and we also blame cocaine because normally the combination of the two create a very bad decision. <laughs> Carl has been signed to a major label. He knows what really we're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> Unbeknownst to many artists. <laughs> I will say this. I think actually the arrangement and the and the playing might be better on the Sammy Davis record. The actual music. I mean, I think it's, it's one of those things where like Isaac Hayes got a second chance. There's like really cool stuff going on in that arrangement and music. Like there's, I mean, I think the, the backing vocals are very Swingle Sisters. They're very like, you know, high lows, uh, jazz pop of the era or, or actually of an era before. But they're really smoothed out, right? But the music is pretty hard, and there's like kind of weird guitar stuff happening that wasn't, you know, um, bad songs stick with us for funny reasons. That's right. I mean, and again, that's also the point of the show is like, we're not just covering it to diss it. It's like, this affects us in a cultural way. Right. So how has history judged this particular version of, of, of Theme from Shaft? And what's interesting is there's not a lot of you know, critique of Sammy Davis's version. The one thing that sort of distinguishes it is it, it became like a favorite on like Dr. Demento. And there was this whole series of compilations called Golden Throats, which were like, you know, the William Shatner and the Leonard Nimoy attempts at, you know, really, you know, terrible, terrible versions of songs. Um, Richard Harris. Richard Harris. Oh, and that's it. Actually, that's another. Yeah, yeah, that's the other thing. Yeah, Richard Harris doing MacArthur Park. I mean, it's got to be one of the. He does it on the album. Sammy does it on his out the album now, which is the same album this this Shaft is on. And Ken I mean, MacArthur Park is one of the most overrated songs. But of his all version time. is good, actually. Uh, Sammy's version is good on this album. Um. So anyway, what's interesting is it's just become historic as like flat-footed unhip a musicality and it also i think i think again with the golden throats sort of compilations it's always it's always a singer like a pat boone or a william shatner or a leonard nimoy or sammy davis trying to be hip trying to be something that they are not right i mean carl in your experience as an artist what is you know, how successful is it usually when an artist tries to be something they're not? It's never special when you try to be something that you're not. I'm agreeing with you. And I'm, I, I guess I'm saying that you can't step outside of who you are, uh, nor should you really step outside of who you are. That doesn't mean you can't access material that precedes you or wasn't written within your culture or, 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 or is of your moment, but you should never really step outside of who you are. And, what you are able to say and he was unable to say this you know he, um, was, he was unable to there was no there was no articulation he was unable to speak this. i think that's a perfect way to end the episode thank you carl for coming and 
being our guest. Uh, it has been fucking awesome. Um, and I would like to end this episode with a Carl Hancock Rucks original. So what would you choose for us to end with? That's- oh, man. Oh, man. I don't know. I I don't. Wow. You caught me off guard on that one. Uh, well, you know what? Since we talked about the Lauren Nero thing, didn't I record it? Didn't I record that on the last album? Yeah, I, I recorded. Yeah, play that. You can poverty play. Train. You can play my poverty train. Sure, play that. Yeah, it's on the home estate. Will you give a little intro to it? Um, it is. So this is Carl Hancock Rutz singing a Laura Nero cover, "Poverty Train." It's a song actually that when she did it at um, live at this concert, she was booed off stage, which is really really interesting and that was and that was the the only person that i really got to see um but i was able to really tap into i think i'm not saying i tapped into it as an artist so much i just what i really mean to say is that i was able to understand for myself what i thought this particular song was trying to be which is really a blues song that, that was rooted in, in the blues. And then once I started to sing the lyrics, it, it just, it, it hit home for me in such a huge way. I understand why, you know, Laura Nero's version may not have been the one that, that landed for people, but I love it. I love it as a song. It's an incredible piece. Did, didn't she do it at um, Monterey uh, Pop Festival? Yeah. That's when yeah. she got booed, and she, right? And she was yeah. booed off stage and she cried and she said she would never sing it. She would never yeah. sing it again. And the problem wasn't the song. It was just her interpretation of it. She was doing too much. You know, she was doing a lot. Yeah. I love Laura Nero, by the way. I, I love I Laura Nero. Yeah. I, I mean, I love the fact that she has, like, she has everything in there. Jazz, bebop, doo-wop, right. uh, soul, traditional. I mean, right. she's one of my favorites, one of my all-time favorites. So. This is incredible. And that's why she makes good a good songwriter who people have covered. Well, thank you, Carl, for joining us on Disinfect. And um, so thank you, guys. Yeah, thank you very much, Carl. Much appreciated. Because um, this is two hours you're never going to get back of your life. So thank you for giving it to us. <laughs> <laughs> Come funky, 
This event was created by Boris Bernstein and Matt Deal. Produced by Sean Lewis and Esther Yoon. Theme music by Jeremy Clark, a.k.a. Mr. 66. Artwork by Bill McMullen, a.k.a. Millions Make Millions. If you want to tell us how much you love or hate, disinfect, or wish to purchase an extremely overpriced commemorative mug, oven mitt, or t-shirt, please find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and disinfectpodcast.com. You can also contact us at info at disinfectpodcast.com. Please like, subscribe, donate, all that shit. Thank you and see you next episode to disinfect more of music's worst songs. Wherever fine podcasts are shilled. Copyright, Giant Step 2020, and whatever other necessary boilerplate, legal mumbo jumbo, blah, 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 you hear at the end of your favorite podcast.